It's time for you all to wake up and shift your paradigm. This world is the kingdom of darkness and we are living in its last days. It won't be long before the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat and the earth and everything therein shall be burnt up. The Luciferian elite have been setting up the new world order and now they've established the globalist beast system for the rise of that wicked one and revealing of the man of sin who comes after the workings of Satan. Don't take my word for it. Read the Bible and you'll know that perilous times shall come in the last days. And we are in the last days. Listening to the Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight's going to be an exploration of some dark realities of the occult festival known as Samhain, or popularly known as the holiday Halloween. Rather than breaking down the well-known pagan origins, we'll be diving into many of the strange and demonically fueled occurrences surrounding this holiday. It's not just a holiday celebrated one day of the year but rather a season that seems to possess the masses with a spirit. And this season is filled with much occult practice, permeating beyond the season and into the lives of many. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the Fourth Watch Radio Network, I call this episode Season of the Witch. Well, it's officially Thursday, and that means it's officially time for the fourth watch. It is such a blessing to be back with you all, and we've got a great show on tap tonight. If you're a new listener, we're very grateful to have you tuning in, and we want to let you know that there's a brand new show posted every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard. Be sure to head on over to fourthwatchradio.com. That's F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H. R-A-D-I-O.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find show archives, links to our free mobile apps for Apple and Android devices, links to all of our websites, as well as a donate page that will show multiple ways you can help support the Fourth Watch Ministries. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes if that's your preferred method of listening. A couple quick reminders. Hollow Earth Chronicles is now on sale and available in multiple formats, including DVD and instant HD streaming. You can secure your copy right now at fourthwatchfilms.com. That's fourthwatchfilms, all spelled out, dot com. This is a powerful and groundbreaking, high-quality documentary that you won't want to miss. So be sure to get your hands on a copy or stream it today at fourthwatchfilms.com. Now, tonight we revisit some of my research into the season surrounding Halloween, or as I like to call it, the season of the witch. 
This will be an informative breakdown of many strange details that most people overlook or have never even heard of. I've not covered this content in two years, so I felt that it was a good time to go ahead and break it out again. Some of you who have followed my work over the years may remember some of this content, but it's good to be refreshed with this study. This study, while controversial, will remain as objective as possible and is not about taking sides on the holiday, but will rather be providing a great deal of information that you won't hear widely discussed anywhere else. We've remastered this audio broadcast for your listening pleasure, and I sure hope you enjoy it. So with that said, let's go ahead and roll the broadcast. As the seasons change and the fall comes, we see the stores fill up with fun decorations and Halloween-inspired marketing. We see costumes and many different types of seasonal items. It seems like harmless fun, and of course it's a great time to buy all the candy you can bodily handle. But behind this holiday lies a dark history, which many of you are well familiar with. Of course this episode is not about the history, but rather tonight we explore the spirit of Halloween and even more directly put, the demonically-fueled behaviors and events that take place on Halloween. It's the season that's filled with conditioning through radio and TV shows, movie marathons on your favorite television networks, and it's only seemingly normal to enjoy the modern holiday. At least in our culture it is. But what's the driving force behind it all? What really goes on in the spirit of Halloween while your kids are out trick-or-treating? Is it possible that there's more to it taking place in the occult world? and even possibly in the spirit realm? Is it possible that it's one of the most dangerous times of the year, filled with child and animal abductions and blood sacrifices? It's ironic that the season brings in many strange news stories and occurrences that accompany the falling leaves and the changes in the weather. Many websites promoting an advent of Halloween, celebrating the entire month of October, and these websites are recommending their followers to begin visiting haunted places and even cursed locations in celebration of the season. They're recommending people to invoke spirits and even seek out paranormal experiences. So let's go ahead and look behind the fun and the marketing to hear just a little bit about the realities that are taking place during the season of Halloween. First of all, Halloween is one of the most important dates on the satanic calendar. You can look into this also referred to as the celebration of death. According to the satanic calendar, Samhain, or Halloween, October 31st, is a night for human sacrifice. It's one of the two most important nights of the year. Attempts are made to break the bond, which is keeping the doors to the underworld closed. Blood and sexual rituals occur in mass. There is also sexual association with demons, and an explosion of demonic practices and paranormal activity taking place. We see an influx in animal and human sacrifice as people invoke power and lusts of the world. People are widely opening themselves up to the spirit of Halloween and in effect, rampant demonic activity. These are blood and death hungry demons. You see, the Bible tells us that Satan seeks to steal, kill and destroy. And this is a time of year where all of these take place. Popularly known as Devil's Night, Halloween invites many forms of lawlessness and havoc. But originally, Devil's Night was October 30th, although now it's a term that's attached to Halloween. And as we see, much of the demonic behavior starts ramping up in the weeks prior to Halloween, and then it escalates into the 31st. And most Americans are completely unaware of it, but the reality is that some extremely bizarre rituals are taking place on and around Halloween. 
many animal shelters and pet stores have started refusing to adopt out black cats in the weeks leading up to Halloween, and in recent days, black and white cats. The following is an excerpt from an article in the New York Daily News. This is a time when blood rituals take place, said Heidi Litke, director of animal placement at the ASPCA. She said black cats are often sacrificed. Once again, this Halloween, there will be cats, dogs, and other animals that will be tortured and sacrificed. The people that work at animal shelters are well aware of what is going on. The following is an excerpt from an article in the Baltimore Sun. As horrible as this may sound, cats are tortured around Halloween time, said Deborah Thomas, executive director of the Maryland SPCA, which for years has enforced a virtual moratorium on black cat adoptions in the days before Halloween. It's just incredible what people will do to cats as if they don't have any feelings. Reportedly, black cats and white cats are the ones most commonly used in these rituals. But as an article in the LA Times noted, these groups will use cats of any color if they are desperate. And this is what the article said. There are also so-called religious groups that sacrifice animals, said Leslie Epic of the Glendale SPCA. If desperate, they will take any cat no matter what color. Then I found another article on WSBTV.com explaining that a black cat was carried into the woods near a Clayton County, Georgia apartment complex, and it was sprayed with flammable liquid and set on fire. And then in Stockbridge, Georgia, someone tried to chemically burn a devil caricature, horns and all, into the face of a black kitten. It's no surprise, ladies and gentlemen, that in recent years, there has been an explosion of interest into the occult in the United States. Some of the most popular books, television shows, and movies have been about vampires, witches, warlocks, ghosts, and dark supernatural phenomena, literally invoking the Halloween spirit all year long and culminating a lust for the season of the witch. A few years back, the local NBC affiliate in Miami covered a pretty horrific story about a blood-drinking vampire cult. Here's an excerpt. Stephanie Pisty confirmed assertions by police in Parker, Florida, that the people involved in the July murder of a 16-year-old Jacob Hendershot were actually in a vampire cult. Pisty, who was arrested last Monday and charged with accessory to murder, said she sees herself as a modern-day Dracula. And she's quoted for telling WBBH-TV, Since I was like 12 in every fiber of my body, basically everything, I believe that I'm a vampire and part werewolf. And this is her quote right there to the television. The article goes on to say that the three abductors who were involved in this murder denied drinking the blood of the victim, but they all admit to consensually drinking each other's blood in their vampire rituals. Another vampire crime was covered in an article by the Christian Post. A 19-year-old in Texas claiming to have been a 500-year-old vampire needing to be fed broke into a woman's home, threw her against the wall, and tried to suck her blood. As crazy as some of this sounds, it actually gets deeper as we learn about the Halloween rituals involving human sacrifice. Now, I want to go ahead and play a little excerpt of an interview that was done with an ex-Satanist who describes the events that his Halloween used to involve growing up in the occult. Glenn Hobbs was initiated into a satanic coven as a child by his grandfather and continued participating for many years. I recently asked Glenn about his involvement and the importance of Halloween to the occultist. Well, my involvement in uh, satanic worship was I was involved in it as a child. Of course, I was a generational Satanist, what they call a generational Satanist. And what that means is that my family 
was involved in it and their family before them. Now, my earliest rememberings of Halloween and some of the things that were involved was it was a very dark time for me as a child. It was something that um, I didn't enjoy. Glenn, could you tell us about your involvement in any rituals at Halloween as a child? There was a, another little girl that was involved in the, uh, the occult with me, and her name was Becky. Now, Becky was another, a different type of child. She was uh, blessed to be a sacrifice. I was being blessed to be a high priest, where she was being blessed and born into the, the coven there to be a sacrifice. Now, we were in a ritual where we were married together. Um, it was a marriage to the beast. And uh, me and the little girl were married together, and there was a lot of sexual abuse that took place and a, a lot of blood that was spilt over us, joining us together. When do Halloween rituals actually begin, and what is the ultimate purpose of Halloween? Well, the ritual that I remember the most clearly um, began about the end of September. Um, me and the little girl, the one I mentioned named Becky, the, the abuse was very concentrated at that time. Uh, we were taken into several rooms where our clothing was removed. We spent the next couple of weeks in a kind of a shack where a lot of rituals went on, where a lot of animals were, were killed. Um, they summoned Lucifer and his spirit to come and uh, possess me and so that I would be blessed to take over the position of the high priest at a certain point in time. Um, now, Halloween night, um, they had again put me and the little girl in the, in the back of this van and we again drove off, which seemed like for a long time. We were drugged once again. And we finally came to this stop. They took the little girl out and they left me in the van. Um, I could hear a lot of commotion that was going on outside. Uh, people that were, were screaming and, and yelling and, and uh, this low murmuring and a moaning noise that was going on, like some kind of a low chanting noise that was going on. So I knew in my mind there was some type of a ritual going on because I'd heard that many times before. You know, it was real common to see people fall on the ground and, and convulse and, and go into convulsions during the rituals and stuff with the demonic presence that were around. And uh, finally, a woman came to the back of the van and she said, it's time to go. And she brought me out of the van, and I could see that there was just a lot of people around. Uh, some were dressed in uh, dark brownish kind of robes with hoods over them. They took me up, and they led me up to this stone altar. And uh, I remember I saw the little girl, and she was on the altar. Now, at first, you know, I, I just wondered what was going on because you never knew. I mean, they used the altar for a lot of different things. They could have just been sacrificing an animal over, could have been a sexual abuse from the high priest on to her. You know, it was a hard thing to, to know for sure. Well, they finally, they ushered me up to the altar and I could see that they had bound her feet. They had, they had her feet spread apart, her legs, 
and they had bound them to the ends of the altar, and they had taken her arms, which were laying out this way, and roped them to the altar, which had little kind of like hooks, which they could bind the ropes around. And she was really white. Just I, I, I remember seeing her, and she was just real pale and real white. And I noticed that they had slit the bottoms of her feet and her wrists. And they were taking the blood that was running out of those areas and putting them into chalices and passing those cups around to different people who were partaking of her blood. Then the, the high priest, he took the athami or the ritual knife and he picked it up and he put my hand on it and then he forced it into her chest. So when I think back on Halloween, you know, over that period of time that happened, you know, that was the climax event, Halloween night, where they, they killed that innocent little girl. And this is something that's happening every Halloween. That's not just an isolated event. I mean, there are children all over the world who are losing their lives during Halloween night, and yet we, as a society, we go out and celebrate it, and we go door to door, and we ask for candy, and it's a, it's a big celebration to us. And I think it's quite ironic how one group of people are thinking it's fun, and another group of people are taking human life. And yet, they don't, you know, there seems to be this wall, and nobody wants to face the facts of what's really going on. That was an excerpt from the Jeremiah Films Halloween trick-or-treat film, for those of you who are curious. We could go deeper breaking down human sacrifices, but we need to move on. But for any of you skeptics out there, here's a little statistic for you. Retired FBI chief Ted Gunderson said this. He said, I'd estimate a little under 4 million practicing Satanists are in America. That's 1.5%. He goes on to say that based on three separate sources... There is between 50 to 60,000 human sacrifices that take place each year in America. Let me say that one more time. This is coming from a retired FBI chief, Ted Gunderson. He says that there are between 50 and 60,000 human sacrifices that take place every year in America. And this was back in the year 2000. We can come to the conclusion that the statistics are exponentially higher now because we're 16 years down the road. So 50 to 60,000 human sacrifices a year in America back in 2000? There's no telling what it is right now. And Halloween is a time where this is rampant. Now moving forward, as many Americans decorate their yards and their houses for Halloween, I found these next two news stories pretty interesting. On October 26, 2005, the corpse of a 42-year-old woman was left suspended in public view for hours in Frederica, Delaware, because her lifeless body was assumed to be yet another Halloween decoration. The unnamed woman hung herself from a tree across a moderately busy road from some homes. Her body suspended about 15 feet above the ground and could easily be seen by passing vehicles. State police spokesman Jeff Oldham and neighbors said they noticed the body around 7.30 that morning, but they simply dismissed it as a holiday prank. Authorities arrived at the scene at 11 to begin the process of examining the scene and removing the body. The deceased lived about a quarter mile from where her body was discovered. 
Similarly, in mid-October 2009, the decomposing body of a 75-year-old suicide victim sat undisturbed on the balcony of the deceased's home in Marina del Rey, California, for several days, because neighbors assumed it was merely part of a Halloween display. The man had apparently been dead for three days with a single gunshot wound to one eye. He was slumped over a chair on the third floor balcony of his apartment on Bora Bora Way. This was reported by cameraman Austin Rachebrook, who was on the scene when authorities were alerted to the body. Neighbors said they noticed the body three days earlier, but didn't bother calling authorities because it looked like a Halloween dummy. There's something strange about deaths surrounding Halloween, but even more so in dealing with the deaths taking place on Halloween. Now, for all you Harry Potter fans out there, which I'm not one, but you might remember the character called Nearly Headless Nick, the ghost of the Gryffindor Tower, and he appears in the Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets movie. The nickname Nearly Headless Nick came about when someone tried to behead him by hitting him 45 times in the neck but didn't quite get it right. Subtly placed in the witchcraft movie, Nick died on Halloween, October 31st, 1492. Why would they author in that date of his death? Anton LaVey, who founded the Church of Satan in 1966 and even played the devil in the satanic movie Rosemary's Baby, died at the age of 67. Relatives said LeVay died of pulmonary edema on October 29th at St. Mary's Hospital. Mysteriously, the death certificate states that LeVay actually died on Halloween morning, October 31st. What's the significance of that? As we study history, we see many celebrity deaths fall on Halloween. We've learned in the past how the majority of celebrities are handled and even owned by the Illuminati and compartmentalized secret societies and cabals that worship Lucifer. I think it's more than coincidental that so many celebrities have died on Halloween, as we know that it's one of the days of human sacrifice unto Lucifer. How better to do it than to sacrifice one of your own? Many of the Halloween celebrity deaths over the years are recorded as cancer, accidents, or even other health-related complications. But here's the question that I proposed. How easy would it be for those people who are already having health complications to be simply taken out while under hospital care? Of the enormous list that I found, I thought it was interesting that for many on the list, the deaths took place in Los Angeles and had ties to Hollywood. I don't have time to get into all these accounts, but a few celebrity names that stuck out to me were River Phoenix, Harry Houdini, and even Charles Taze Russell, all of them died on Halloween. Now, Charles Taze Russell, he was the founder of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. For those of you who don't know, that's the Jehovah's Witness Society which not only rewrote their own Bible and perverts and denies the deity of Christ, but also has ties to the Freemasons and the New World Order. Although Russell didn't die in Los Angeles, it's ironic that such a bold leader of a false religion would die on Halloween while on a tour around the country spreading his false gospel. There's many that will argue that Halloween deaths are merely coincidental, despite the fact that it's a night of human and animal sacrifice as well as a night that many are possessed by demons as a result of rituals. It is a fact that across the country of America, there is a major crime spike on Halloween night, and even in the days leading up to it. So let's look at some of the crimes that have taken place on Halloween. Some may be ritual in nature, while others may just be the result of demon possession. But one thing they all have in common is death. And it's no coincidence that this night of high demonic activity would invite in the deaths of many. They don't call it Devil's Night for nothing. Halloween is often an occasion for masked marauders to flaunt the law and go wild. 
Sometimes this is just a seemingly innocent blowing off of steam, like throwing eggs at houses, smashing pumpkins, and even TPing trees. But sometimes it's much more sinister, and it's nothing less than a demonic playground. People under the influences of these demons commit wild and unusual crimes, and even cold-blooded murder. First, let's look at the Peter Fabiano murder, Halloween 1957. When you hear that knock on your door on Halloween night, you're not expecting anything but little tykes in colorful costumes begging for candy. But for Los Angeles resident Peter Fabiano, trick-or-treat was the last thing he heard. On Halloween night, Fabiano opened the door to reveal a grown-up in full disguise who shot him in the chest with a 22 caliber gun and a brown paper bag before fleeing the scene. It was a murderous plot steeped in lust and homosexual covetousness. Then we have the Timothy O'Brien poisoning of Halloween 1974. One of the most enduring Halloween urban legends is the story of candy or other treats tampered with in some way, whether it be spider eggs in the bubble gum or razor blades and apples. Most of these stories are chalked up to urban myths, but there have been real incidents. One of the most famous of these incidents came in 1974 in Deer Park, Texas. After trick-or-treating, eight-year-old Timothy O'Brien chose a pixie stick to cap off his evening. After eating it, he began convulsing and died after being rushed to the hospital. Terrifyingly, the perpetrator was his own father, Ronald O'Brien. Deep into debt, O'Brien was hoping to cash in on the life insurance policy from his kids by poisoning their candy with cyanide. Instead, he wound up dying by lethal injection a few years later. Then we have the Martha Moxley murder of Halloween 1975. This one has some interesting spins. The scene was Greenwich, Connecticut. The night before Halloween, 15-year-old Martha Moxley left to attend a neighborhood party held at the home of the Skakels. It was the last time she would ever be seen alive. Her body was found on Halloween morning, brutally battered and stabbed to death beneath a tree in her backyard. A shattered golf club lay nearby. Now here's an interesting spin. The two teenage brothers, Michael and Thomas Skakel, 15 and 17, who were hosting the party, were the nephews of Robert F. Kennedy, who was assassinated in Los Angeles in 1968 during his run to win the Democratic nomination for president. The hideous crime went unsolved for almost 25 years when Michael Skakel was finally charged and convicted of a murder. Several witnesses claimed that he had confessed to the crime while in drug rehab. It was also recorded that he bragged about being able to get away with the murder because he was a Kennedy. He did not in fact get away with the murder, although in the past recent years, the Kennedys have lobbied to get him released and to have the charges dropped. Then we move to the Pasadena murders, Halloween 1993. One of the most shocking Halloween crimes of all time happened in Pasadena, California. On Halloween night in 1993, decades of gang violence culminated in a horrific shooting where a group of five bloods opened fire on trick-or-treating teenagers, killing three of them and wounding three others. The victims were walking home from a Halloween party when the assailants jumped out of the bushes they had been hiding in and opened fire randomly, spraying them with bullets. After arrests were made, the police reasoned that the shootings were revenge for a killing earlier that night. But ironically, the victims had no connection to the Bloods or any rival gangs. Then we have the Tony Bagley murder of Halloween 1994. This one is incredibly tragic. Seven-year-old Las Vegas boy Tony Bagley was all ready to go trick-or-treating on Halloween night in 1994, but he never had the chance to enjoy his candy. Tony, his sister, his aunt, and mother were walking down the street in the Northtown area when a man in a sweatsuit with a hood ran into the street with a gun and opened fire on the family, killing Tony and wounding his family before jumping into a waiting car and speeding away. Then we have Carl Jackson, 
Halloween 1998. We know Halloween is often a time for pranksters to get their jollies by causing property damage and other shenanigans. Most of the time, people just clean it up and move on with their day. But the Bronx father, Carl Jackson, never had the chance. You see, Jackson, who had just turned 21, was a quiet, friendly data entry worker at Morgan Stanley. On Halloween night, he went with his girlfriend to pick up her nine-year-old son from a party. While there, some teenagers threw eggs at their car. Jackson got out and exchanged words with the throwers and stepped back into the car. As soon as he got back in the car, one of the teens pulled a gun and shot him through the head, killing him instantly. Then we have the Napa Valley murders of Halloween 2004. After a quiet Halloween night spent handing out candy to Napa, California trigger-treaters, roommates Leslie Mazzara, Adrian Exogna, and Laura Mianza all headed to bed. Mianza was woken up by sounds of a scuffle upstairs at about 1 in the morning, and she ran in terror from the house, hiding in the backyard and watching an unidentified assailant climb out of a window. She ran upstairs to check on her roommates to find them both viciously stabbed to death. It took nearly a year to find the killer, but cigarette butts found at the scene eventually fingered a man named Eric Koppel, the fiancé of one of the girl's friends. Then we have the Woodbridge abductions of Halloween 2009. When kids are out alone on Halloween night trick-or-treating, it's like a buffet for occultists and covens to eat from. In 2009, three teenage girls were abducted on their way home from trick-or-treating in Woodbridge, Virginia. The lone assailant managed to overcome all three girls, threatening them with a gun and sexually assaulting two of them before the third managed to call her mother on her cell phone, causing the rapist to flee the scene. Two years later, they caught Aaron Thomas, who by then had become known as the East Coast Rapist, responsible for dozens of sexual assaults from 1997 to 2009. Then we had the Liskey family murders of Halloween 2010. In 2010, Halloween landed on a Sunday. But for Ohio teenager Devin Griffin, it didn't turn out to be such a holy day. After returning to his Martin, Ohio home after attending church, Griffin found the corpses of his brother Derek, mother Susan, and her new husband William Liskey. All three victims had received blunt force trauma to the head, and Devin was so traumatized he could only say that it was like something out of a haunted house. Then we see the Taylor Vendias murder, Halloween 2011. We know small towns can be breeding grounds for Halloween violence as well. On Halloween night in 2011, a young woman named Taylor Van Deist was heading home from a party in the small town of Armstrong in the northern Okanagan Territory of Canada. Unfortunately, she never made it. Taylor was found brutally beaten into unconsciousness, and she wasn't able to identify her attacker before dying of her injuries. Her death traumatized the town of just over 5,000 people, especially after it was revealed that she had sent a text to her boyfriend before the attack, saying that she was being creeped on. It's extremely evident, folks, that these demonic cases of murder were fueled by the so-called spirit of Halloween, in my opinion. And these are only scratching the surface. This is what's going on while your kids are trick-or-treating. Now, as we look deeper at Halloween, I think we can all agree that some of the most popular hero characters of Halloween are witches, devils, vampires, ghosts, and mummies. But it's officially reported that out of the top five most popular Halloween costumes of all time, the top two are witches and vampires. One site says this about the witch costume. A witch is a visual representation of what Halloween is all about. I'd say that's pretty accurate. Now the description continues to say that you can still make an entrance at an adult or kid's costume party in an authentic looking witch costume featuring a pointy hat. The second most popular being the vampire costume, and it's explained on the site with these words. We've been fascinated by vampires for years. The traditional vampire Halloween costumes with a pronounced widow's peak and a satin cape still have their place in the costume world. 
Despite the popular vampire movies of the modern era, the second most popular costume of all time is a traditional vampire, which is the Count Dracula look. Let's look a little deeper into this. Let's examine the witch first. What would Halloween be like without witches? Let me share with you some material found in an illustrated history of witchcraft by Peter Haining. He states that the witch is without doubt one of the most enduring figures in superstition and literature. Whether portrayed as an aged crony on a broomstick, on some kind of mission of evil, or a young girl dancing naked with her companions in a wooded grove, she can be found in carvings of antiquity or the columns of today's newspapers. Since the Middle Ages, writings have shown her as an enemy of humanity, a solitary being able to compact with the devil to work all manner of supernatural powers. The oldest known illustrated picture of a witch dates back to the pre-Columbian times and shows the goddess Tlaxolteotl naked, wearing a pointed hat, riding what appears to be a reversed broomstick of sorts, and holding a serpent in her hands. She was known as the Aztec goddess of filth and is even worshipped and celebrated to this very day. The first famous witch in history is the Witch of Endor. 1 Samuel 28 relates how King Saul went to her in an effort to get in touch with the dead prophet of God, Samuel. He needed advice on how to defeat the Philistines. He should have known better, though, because Exodus 22.18 prescribed being a witch as a capital crime, punishable by death. Again, Deuteronomy 18.9-14 warned that God's children were to have nothing to do with the occult. Even in the New Testament, Revelation 21.8, Galatians 5.20 lists the practitioners of witchcraft as being excluded from God's kingdom. The Apostle Luke wrote about what people did about their occultic involvement when they came to know Christ as their Savior. We can read about this in Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 19. Many that believed in Christ came, and they confessed their former evil practices and showed their deeds. Many of them also, which used curious arts, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, a piece of silver was a day's wage back in that day. By today's standard, that could have been as much as half a million dollars. That's a lot of satanic and witchcraft books. Now, we've talked about witches before, but what exactly do witches believe? Contemporary witchcraft is so diverse and eclectic that it's extremely difficult to accurately identify and define. In fact, you can't accurately say that all witches believe such and such, but you can give general guidelines relating to their beliefs, and that's what we're going to do right now. First of all, witches would have you believe witchcraft is different from Satanism. Now, in a minor sense, they are partially correct here. Satanism is the rebellion against and a reversal of Christianity. A practicing witch put it this way. She said Satanism is basically a reversion and a perversion of Christian symbolism. Witchcraft, on the other hand, is not a reaction to Christianity, but rather pagan worship of the mother goddess and her consort to the horn god. Wiccan witches claim they don't even acknowledge Satan. But a former Alexandrian Wiccan stated this, and I quote, As I got to the higher degrees, I learned that the name of the horned god was Lucifer. I learned that the sign of the second degree was an inverted pentagram, symbolizing the horns of Satan. Though witches like to make a distinction between themselves and Satanists, there really is no distinction biblically speaking. They might play little word games making the connection between Lucifer and Satan, but the power behind Satanism and witchcraft is in fact the same Satan or Lucifer and his demonic hordes. When the Bible makes reference to witchcraft, it means literally anyone who is involved in some form of the occult. The word occult comes from the Latin meaning secret, hidden, or esoteric knowledge, or practices that are private and only understood by a few. 
Then we see that there are three basic categories of the occult. First, we have divination, seeking to know the past, present, or future by astrology, horoscopes, channeling, tarot cards, etc. But the fact is, this can include animal or human sacrifice in these practices. Then the second category is sorcery or magic, seeking to control or manipulate reality for one's own purposes. This can include animal or human sacrifice to accomplish that end as well. Thirdly, we have spiritism, seeking to communicate with the dead or entities. It's not uncommon to see mixtures of all three of these in modern practices. Now, generally speaking, it's accurate to say that those who practice witchcraft hold the following four beliefs. First of all, we have animism, the belief that all objects, rocks, trees, wind, plants, mountains, are all alive and have a soul. Then there's pantheism, the belief that everything is divine or God per se. Divinity is inseparable from and imminent in everything such as nature and humanity. In fact, in this belief, we are all considered divine or gods according to pantheism. Then there's polytheism, which is belief in many deities of gods. They also believe in multi-levels of reality. At this point, I should tell you that there is great diversity within occult and satanic groups, as some of you may know. Witches and occultists disagree among themselves as to what constitutes a witch. But researchers find that there are several distinguishable categories into which occultists fit. You have the dabblers. They are experimenting or playing around with the occult. Then you have the eclectic or self-styled occultists. They've moved from the dabbling stage into a deeper involvement. They're developing their own individualized occultic religion and even developing personalized beliefs and practices. Then we have religious occultists. These people openly belong to an official occult group. Their group is often tax-exempt and is protected by the First Amendment. They deny involvement in any criminal activity and they seek to present their beliefs as a legitimate religion. For example, we have Lord Cabot, official witch of Salem, Massachusetts. She heads the Temple of Isis. Then there's the Church of the Circle Wicca, the Witches International Craft Association, and numerous others. Lastly, we have the intragenerational occultist. These are the clandestine, secret, family religions that pass their occultic practices from one generation to another. This category of occultists seems to be well-organized, very secretive, and are often very dangerous. These are what make up the Illuminati. For the most part, wherever you find witchcraft, you will likely find nudity because many of their rituals are performed in the nude. Witches practice divination. That is an attempt to obtain information regarding the past, present, or future through occultic methods like astrology, channeling, inviting a spirit guide to possess your body, tarot cards, crystal balls, the list goes on. You see, magic is a cornerstone of witchcraft. I'm talking about invoking or attempting to invoke an invisible force that we know as a demon for use in influencing, manipulating, or controlling a given situation. And they do this to accomplish one's own will in a situation. That takes you to Aleister Crowley's doctrine, doest thou wilt. And he says that's the whole law. Then there is the common practice among witches and occult followers of drawing down the moon. This is interesting. The high priestess of the coven usually stands nude or nearly nude with her arms outstretched to the sky and calls down the goddess or invites the goddess to possess them. In response, the high priestess will often enter into a trance state and become the voice of the goddess. During this time, she functions as the goddess incarnate or the goddess in the flesh within their magical circle. Whatever she says is supposedly directly from the goddess. While this is taking place simultaneously around the world on specific days like Halloween, it's made clear that the powers that possess these witches are posing as the goddess, but in fact they're just demons. 
We know that God is omnipresent. There's no other force that's omnipresent. There's no goddess. There's no God other than Yahweh, Elohim, that's omnipresent. So if multiple witches are practicing this ritual of drawing down the moon, and they're all practicing it on the same day, it's pretty apparent from a biblical standpoint that what they're doing is calling down a demon. They're being possessed by a demon. Witches and coven members practice many immoral and perverted sexual practices as well. It's obvious that God does not want his children to have anything to do with witches or witchcraft. I believe we should abstain from all appearance of evil, as we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Certainly that would include dressing up like a witch, wizard, or sorcerer for Halloween. Then we move to the great vampire Dracula, coming in at number two in the most popular costumes of all time. If you watch this year, you will see a number of these black-caped, fang-toothed monsters running around this Halloween. You see, Dracula was a real person. He was a satanic maniac monster. During his six-year rule, it was estimated by a reliable source that Dracula massacred 100,000 men, women, and children. And how did he impose the death on the masses? He killed some of them by breaking them under the wheels of carts. Others, stripped of their clothes, were skinned alive up to their entrails. Others were placed on stakes or even roasted on red-hot coals placed under them. Others were punctured with stakes, piercing their head, their navel, breast, and what is even unworthy of relating, piercing their buttocks in the middle of their entrails and emerging from their mouths. So they would even stick these stakes through their butts all the way directly through their body and they would come out of their mouths. Sadly, no one was excluded from his wrath, not even babies. Dracula would decapitate, cut noses, ears, private parts, and even limbs right off the people. On one occasion, he even nailed the turbans on the heads of some Turkish men because they refused to remove the turbans in his presence. Let me relate one last atrocity of this warped, demonic-inspired madman. Dracula had devised a plan to rid society of the burden of all the country's beggars, sick, old, lame, and poor. He invited them all to a feast. Little did they know that it would become a house of horror. He fed them well and got them drunk, and then he made his personal appearance and he asked them all publicly, Do you want to be without cares? Do you want to be lacking nothing in this world? Naturally, as the lower class of society, they all said yes, of course. Dracula then ordered the palace to be boarded up and set on fire. No one escaped. Dracula was a demon-possessed madman and a warlord. He was named Vlad the Impaler. Interestingly, Ancestry.com named several U.S. politicians and celebrities with blood ties to Vlad the Impaler. Former U.S. President George W. Bush, ex-presidential candidate John Kerry, and even Stephanie Meyer, who wrote the Twilight novels that inspired the movies. So the question that we need to ask, why would anyone want to associate with or have their child associated in any way with such a degenerate reprobate as the historic Dracula or even a witch, especially after what we've talked about tonight? The Apostle Paul's admonition in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14-17 certainly applies when it says, What fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Come out from among them and be ye separate. And the fact is, ladies and gentlemen, we only covered briefly two of Halloween's celebrated heroes. Now, as we move into the close of this week's show, I want to cover something that I found pretty interesting. As a child growing up in a suburb of Houston, Texas, there was a huge underground sewer system. 
Behind our neighborhood was a concreted valley with running water streaming at the bottom, and every so many feet would be a giant pipe coming out of the face of the concrete wall, which was an open entrance into the underground world. These pipes were somewhere around five to six feet tall at the opening, which allowed people to walk into them and enter the dark and creepy room. There was one particular hole that was known as Hell Hole. It was decorated with satanic symbols and different types of gang-related graffiti, and there were stories always being told of satanic and different occult-type practices and rituals that took place somewhere beyond its entrance. Of course, Halloween was supposed to be a time when it was to be feared the most. As brave kids do sometimes, I wanted to take a risk, so I got with my friends, armed with pellet guns and flashlights, and we headed into the hellhole for a ghostly adventure. We would walk a few feet and have to climb up a concrete ledge or a little ladder with flowing water up to our ankles at certain places. It was dark and filled with demonic-sounding echoes and noises that would pierce our ears from every direction. We were looking for the alleged cages where victims were said to be kept, as well as a pet alligator in chains, said to have been held hostage by an old man who dwelt there. After about 30 minutes of trekking into our uncharted territory and jumping at every sound we heard, we finally got freaked out at some strange noises we heard and quickly began making our way back to the surface as fast as possible. We never found what we had been looking for, but I never had a peace about that place. Whether or not the urban legends were true or not, just the ideas of the satanic rituals happening there should have been enough to keep us away. Over the years, I've heard different stories of similar places in different towns and cities, all with different twists, but similar in nature. However, there is a reality we need to face. There are many places just like this around the world where demonic and paranormal activity is prominent and where many Satanist groups, covens, and cabals meet to perform specific rituals on specific high holidays. With this in mind, I found it interesting that as Halloween approaches, an article came out about a place known as Satan's Hollow, located in Ohio, and has now been covered by various outlets of mainstream news worldwide. As I watched a video of two guys walking through the main pipe, I was quickly reminded of the hellhole experience that I had as a child, and the setting was almost identical. So here's the basic story of Satan's Hollow. Locals have dubbed it a portal to hell. Tucked away behind the Ohio woods exists Satan's Hollow, a storm drain that supposedly serves as a gathering spot for devil worshippers. It's one of the best known but least seen urban legends around here, one local blogger wrote. A group of Satanists supposedly used to meet there in some type of altar room and conduct their rituals. He says they must have been pretty good because the legend claims they managed to open a doorway to hell. And while it may simply sound like local folklore, some insist that it's not. As WCPO-TV noted, many claim they've heard screams from inside the tunnels at night. Others say they've seen things that can't be explained. Paranormal filmmaker David Scott published a YouTube tour of the site and said he was terrified throughout the shoot. This is one of the scariest locations I have ever investigated, he said. Footage from his video shows the inside tunnels decorated with 666 and other signs associated with the devil and occult practice. Rumors even persist that a demon known as the Shadow Man guards the portal to hell. He is some kind of hall monitor from hell, left here by Satan to guard these tunnels, another explained. The Shadow Man is said to appear in the form of a human, only completely blacked out, hence his name. I want to stop for a second and remind you that the claims of shadow entities sometimes in the form of humans or even winged creatures, are extremely common in demonic situations. 
I've covered multiple stories of these phenomena in past shows. Now, back to the story. Nevertheless, local law enforcement insists that there is no paranormal activity taking place at Satan's Hollow. Instead, they chalk interest up to rumors continuing to persist and say that because the storm drain is on private property, it's also a burden on those who live nearby. It's rough on the homeowners, Blue Ash Police Lieutenant Steve Schuller told WCPO. People park in their driveway and try to get into the drainage system and nobody likes that. The owner has even had to come and chase off some people for sure. Officers additionally dispute charges that the location is used for sacrifices. We've never had human sacrifice or any animal killings, Schuller said. We've never had any of that. We've talked to some kids and warned them, the officer added. We were all teenagers at one time and did crazy stuff. We try to give them a warning and get them on their way. However, despite warnings from authorities, it's likely that the portal to hell will continue to attract curious visitors. Of course, the police don't want to create any mass hysteria or to stir up the locals with all of this. I'm not sure, honestly, what exactly is going on there at Satan's Hollow. I do, however, find it very interesting that it very closely resembles the place and the town where I grew up. And I know there was something demonic going on there. No question about it. And there are many stories of strange demonic occurrences that take place inside the earth. This shouldn't be a shocker to most of you who follow the fourth watch. And with it being the Halloween season, these places will be attracting more locals and visitors alike, attempting to stir up demonic entities for a rush of excitement. As we said earlier, this is the season where people come out of the woodworks to pursue fear and demonic and paranormal activity. It goes back to the spirit of Halloween. It's pretty telling when pagans warn the world of Halloween practices as being harmful. One pagan apologist blogger writes about the dangers of Halloween. He says it's a dangerous holiday because it's one that focuses on violence with an emphasis on fear. And lastly, he says it focuses on the occult. While I agree with this statement, I must correct something. It's not just that it focuses on these things, but it is in fact based on these things. And it was birthed in all of these attributes historically. With all of the horrifying stories and the truths that surround the season of Halloween and the deception that Satan has flooded our world with, I'm instantly taken into a spiritual warfare mindset. And part of that spiritual warfare is probably completely denied by many Christians. The aspect of spiritual warfare that I'm talking about tonight is the dividing of the church, or even more specifically, the dividing and splitting up of the body of Christ. So many people want to divide over Halloween, or any holiday for that matter. They will accuse other Christians of worshiping the devil or even serving pagan gods. So in tonight's Bible study, I want to hash this out. And this is going to be a little controversial, but hang in there, pay attention, and listen with an open mind and an open heart. Because this message absolutely has to sink in, ladies and gentlemen. We know that Halloween has occult origins, and we even know that there's modern satanic affiliations. This is 100% truth. But we also know that in America, it's been turned into a prepackaged holiday of fun and games for kids. But the dangers are still there because many occultists and Satanists are out to abduct children and animals for blood sacrifices. So it's not exactly a safe time of year for roaming the streets with your kids. And then there are countless other people who are out on drugs and alcohol who will become oppressed and even possessed by demons and will do all manners of horrific acts on this day. Even though those people aren't setting out to be demonized per se, it is a time of year that brings in more demonic activity than any other time of year. And anyone who is not filled with the Holy Spirit is susceptible to this type of demonization. 
But I'm sure your kids are probably influenced by their public schools and their favorite TV shows to want to celebrate the harmless American holiday. This is absolutely understandable, but it's not safe. But on the other hand, I have to say, I do not judge my brothers and sisters for celebrating Halloween, or any holiday for that matter. To many people, it's just an American holiday. They're not invoking Lucifer or making pacts with some strange demonic god. The fact that Christians would accuse other Christians of worshiping the devil this time of year is totally ridiculous and it holds no weight whatsoever. I know that Anton LaVey is quoted for saying that Halloween is the one time of the year that Christians let their kids worship the devil. But he was a minion of Satan and he would have liked nothing more than to create division in the church. And many things that he did and said have in fact created division among Christians. But the question arises, do you really want to be taking theological advice from a Satanist who actually started the Church of Satan? I'd rather personally get my theological doctrine from the Bible. So let's go right to scripture on a principle that deals with this type of matter. Although Halloween was not an issue in the early church, there were countless holidays, feasts, and practices that were causing much division in the body of Christ. And the Apostle Paul felt that he needed to deal with this specifically. We're talking about doubtful disputations. In other words, we're dealing with doubtful disputes among brethren. These are basically things that people argue and have strong opinions about, but they're not really things that are clearly laid out in Scripture specifically. These are things that are not mentioned verbatim in the Bible. And because of this, there are doubts about what is right or what is wrong in those particular situations. Of course, people often go to one extreme or the other in these debates, and oftentimes will use various biblical principles or even historical claims to try and support their stances. But at the end of these doubtful disputations, there usually results a dividing or a division among Christians. And that's exactly what Paul is correcting here in Romans 14. And so tonight I want to correct this division that's been getting worse and worse each year in regards to the holidays. Paul brings up several examples in Romans 14, and I want to just take you there starting in verse 1. This is what Paul wrote, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Now let me break this all down. It's actually saying here that some people think it's wrong to eat meat. And this is just an example. And what the Bible's telling us about people like this is that we should receive them even if we disagree with them. We should never fight with them or judge them or even despise them because of their stance. But we should rather receive them. But it says not to receive them to doubtful disputations. He's saying receive them, but don't receive them into a dispute. He's saying that we cannot cause division and strife over things that are not that important. For example, I heard a story about a pastor of a church who is a vegan. Not only does he not eat meat, but he doesn't eat any animal products at all. Now, this is not a biblical stance, first of all. Nothing in the Bible tells us that this is the way that we should live in order to please God. But if there ever rose up a dispute about being a vegan, the Bible's pretty clear who's right in the dispute. 
It says in verse 2 that one believes he can eat all things, but the other who is weak only eats herbs. The Bible clearly tells us that we can eat all things. But at the end of the day, there's nothing sinful about being a vegetarian or being a vegan. And we should not condemn that person for wanting to be this. But let me tell you where the sin comes into play. The sin comes into play when that person tries to impose something on everyone else that is not a direct biblical commandment. So just picture this. This vegetarian or this vegan rises up and he tells everybody, hey, you all have to be vegans or you all have to be vegetarians just like me because that's my conviction and that must mean that that's the word of God. So anyone who tries to teach that you cannot eat meat and they're teaching this as a commandment, they're actually teaching commandments of men rather than the commandments of God. We actually see a lot of this in the church today. So what the Bible is telling us here in this chapter is that it's okay for people to have differing opinions. And it's even okay for people to have rules that they set for themselves. And they're not biblical rules directly, but they're just rules that people have set for their own lives to live by. That's perfectly okay. You can set some rules for yourself based on your convictions. That is okay. But it's not okay to force those rules or to impose those rules on other people unless they are direct biblical commandments. Because it says in verse 3 that the one who eats meat should not despise the one who doesn't eat meat. But it actually goes deeper to the one who doesn't eat meat. It says the one who does not eat meat cannot judge the one who eats meat. So neither person on either side of the position should be fighting with the other about their personal opinions on this matter. No imposing, no forcing, and no dividing. And especially the one who abstains from eating meat cannot judge the one who does eat meat. If they want to eat meat or if they don't want to eat meat, fine. It's their choice. Do not judge. Do not hate over the issue. Division always comes as a product of judging and despising each other. But the main part of this chapter that I want to focus on is the next part. Now, I wanted to set that other part up because that's leading us into this. It's kind of important to see the progression of the passage because it really puts the context into perspective. So the main part of the chapter that I want to focus on, and this is where it gets heavy duty, starting in verse 5. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Now verse 6. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. This really hits home as we discuss the holidays. You see, the holidays have become a huge issue over the years in the church and even in the Christian community. People not only attack the holidays and say that Christians should not celebrate them, but they actually force their ideology on everyone else and then attack the people who don't have the same convictions. But with the Bible as our authority, if there's not a direct prohibition, if there is not a specific regulation on a given topic, then people can have their own opinions about them and should not be forcefully imposing and judging and even dividing over these opinions. So what I'm saying here, if you're listening right now and you don't celebrate certain holidays because you're convicted about their origins, that is 100% okay. You have every right to take that stance. And knowing what goes on during the time of Halloween, it's a very logical stance to take. 
I don't personally want to be involved in any dangerous situations and I'm totally opposed to any association with satanic rituals. So if you believe that the holidays are wrong and you believe that the holidays are wicked, you should abstain from them. But when you begin to impose that stance on the people who do celebrate them, with no direct biblical basis, I should add, it becomes a problem. Let me explain this. We have to understand that Christians who celebrate the holidays are not going out and worshiping the devil. They're not going out and sacrificing humans or animals. In their minds and in their hearts, they're just participating in a fun and harmless, seasonal, Americanized, marketed holiday. These holidays have been watered down over the years in the mainstream. And because the average Christian doesn't see a simple surface-level celebration as a threat to their faith, they don't see a problem with celebrating them. Again, let me emphasize the fact that when Christians celebrate the holidays, especially Halloween, they're doing it at a shallow surface level, and they're doing it as a marketed holiday. So if you're forcing your position about the holidays on others, and you're judging them over this, and you're dividing with them over this, you are in violation of Romans 14. Yeah, I get it. Some of you aren't going to like me teaching this. But I'm not saying that it's right or wrong to celebrate the holidays. Don't get my words twisted. All I'm saying is that in a modern society of Americanized and marketed holidays, there's two sides to every holiday. And most people are not setting out to worship the devil, although many people are. So knowing the origins and knowing what goes on behind the scenes has caused many people to abstain from these holidays. And they should abstain if they feel a conviction. The Apostle Paul makes this so clear. If you are convicted about it, you should not do it. The scripture says, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. And then as you move down in the scripture, it ties it all back to eating meat again. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not and giveth God thanks. And because he ties it back to the eating meat scenario, we have to remember what he said about the meat scenario in the beginning. The one who eats cannot despise the one who doesn't eat. These are choices, personal liberties. And then he goes on to say that the one that does not eat meat cannot judge the one who eats all things. Again, choices, personal liberties that we have, decisions that we have to make based on our own convictions. And Paul is tying all of this together in the same chapter. This is amazing. Regarding specific days above other days and eating meat, they're the same type of scenario and the analogy and the principle applies to both the exact same way. What would you call a modern holiday? I'd say it's clearly a day that some people regard over other days, while others see it as a normal day. But if the people are worshiping God and giving thanks unto God, it doesn't really matter if one day is regarded above another. Just like if a person eats meat or if they're a vegetarian, if they're serving God, it's all the same. It is a personal choice that has to be made based on personal convictions and rules that you have set for yourself. And if you are judging and dividing over this, you are in direct violation of Romans chapter 14. Of course, there are lines that have to be drawn and boundaries that have to be set. 
And so many Christians are either riding the line or even crossing the line when it comes to the holidays. But we have to handle them in love with the spirit of meekness. We cannot judge and divide with them over these things. We don't have to agree on every little detail, but division is not the answer. And Paul is making that emphatically clear. Don't go rubbing your decision in other people's faces, and don't go stirring up doubtful disputes. This can easily turn into a stumbling block in more ways than one. You can share your stance, share your convictions, and share your reasons for the convictions, and then leave it alone. Let that person pray about it and let that person make their decisions based on the information, based on the scripture, and based on their conviction with the Lord. But then when we get down to verse 20 in Romans 14, Paul says this, For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. So what the Bible is teaching here as a message to believers is that if you think something is wrong, and you have a conviction about doing it, you shouldn't do it. This is going right back to the theme of the earlier verses in the same passage of Scripture. And some of you are going to say that Paul is speaking about eating meat, and he is. But in the same passage, Paul attributes this exact practice of eating meat or not eating meat to the practice of regarding certain days above other days or not regarding certain days above other days. So if you think something is wrong and you have a conviction about doing it, you should not do it. It's a generalized biblical principle that can be applied to many things, and Paul is making that clear here. He's obviously giving different examples here, but he's tying it all together based on a biblical principle. Now, let me paint this picture for you one more time. If you are convicted that you shouldn't celebrate the modern holidays based on their origins, you should not celebrate them. If you think it's wrong and you continue to do it anyway, you're actually sinning against your own conscience. The Bible says if you're not doing it by faith, It's sin. Now, the problem here is that many people are going to misuse Romans chapter 14 to teach that you can just do anything you want to do and that things are only wrong if you think they're wrong. That's false. There are actually two groups of things that are wrong, and I want to break this down. You may want to remember this. This is kind of important. Anything that the Bible says is wrong is wrong. It is sin. Whether you think it's wrong or not, whether you know it or not, if the Bible says it's wrong, It is wrong, period. The second category is based on the principle from Romans 14. And that would be anything that you personally believe is wrong that violates your conscience. If it violates your conscience, it is wrong for you to do. Even if the Bible doesn't say it's wrong, if it violates your conscience, it's wrong for you. Many people will actually put alcohol into this category. It's not biblically sinful to drink alcohol. But if you feel that it's wrong, you better not drink any at all. Because at that point, it's wrong for you based on your conscience. But on the other hand, you are wrong to impose that opinion on other people. I hope you're following where I'm going here. So if you think the modern variations of the holidays are completely wrong, you think that they're wicked and pagan, you shouldn't celebrate them. And I'm not judging you or dividing with you, nor am I trying to convince you to celebrate the holidays. But on the other hand, you shouldn't judge others or divide with them if they choose to celebrate. And they're obviously celebrating because they feel differently than you feel about it. Again, we're talking about Christians here who are not going out literally sacrificing animals or humans. And these Christians are not going out worshiping Satan. But rather, they're just celebrating the commercialized, modern versions of the holidays. And I know this is a little repetitive, but ladies and gentlemen, this has to sink in. 
So much division has taken place about the holidays, and it is time that we grow up and realize that the scripture is so clear that we cannot divide over things that are not biblically black and white. If you have a strong conviction, you can educate your friends on the origins, and you can warn them even of the physical dangers, if applicable, just like I did tonight about Halloween. But you are not to judge and divide. There is no direct scripture which deals with the modern variations of holidays specifically. I know that some will argue with me about this, but the mainstream modern holidays are creations of their own. They have been molded into something totally different than the original occult holidays, and it is not worth dividing over. We have to be coming together as believers based on the foundational core values of our faith, standing firm on the non-negotiables, such as the deity of Jesus Christ Yeshua and the fact that He is the only way to God the Father. We have to stay strong on the virgin birth, the death, burial, and resurrection, and even the ascension and the promise of the second coming. We have foundations that are non-negotiable. We have to focus on being one body of many members, all bringing different gifts and different abilities and skills to the table, doing the work of God as a team, as a family, as a body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we learn that the body of Christ is in fact made up of many members with many varying functions. If the body was made up of only one part, it couldn't function properly. If the body were only made up of an eye, how could it hear? If the body were only made up of an ear, how could it smell? Verses 12 through 14 actually breaks this down. For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. We need each other to do God's work as a unified body. We need each and every believer to be joining hands and working hard to operate in these last days. We have to come together to operate as the body of Christ and the very act of despising each other over minute opinions that are not related to one's salvation is not only sinful, but it's also causing division. And furthermore, it's chipping away at the functionality of the body of Christ. And as Christians, we are the members of the body of Christ. So let's work together in love, educating one another in love, and when accountability is needed, executing that accountability in love. If you divided over opinions and convictions about the holidays, regardless of which side you've taken, you need to make that right and don't let the division go on any further. This principle can be applied to a number of topics and scenarios. If you've been dividing with a brother or sister over anything that's not biblically commanded in black and white, it's time to make right and reconcile those relationships. Again, ladies and gentlemen, this is not a call to celebrate or not to celebrate a particular holiday. The point of this Bible study is to be unified as the body of Christ. And by using the holidays as a perfect illustration, we're able to see that too much division has already taken place in this area. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace.
Ephesians 4.3. This means to eagerly maintain unity or to make a strong effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So even when you have little disagreements about something, work fervently as Christians, as brothers and sisters, work fervently to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I encourage you to just take a moment and ask God to reveal to you if you've been guilty of dividing the brethren over any minute disagreements. Regardless of which side you've taken, I encourage you to ask for forgiveness right now. The next step is to get in touch with those people that you've divided with and make things right with them. I encourage you to pray for protection for yourselves and your communities as Halloween approaches and brings in many physical and spiritual dangers and threats. Take the opportunity to pray for the occultists to be woken up to the glorious grace and mercy of Jesus Christ Yeshua and to be born again radically into a new life even in this season of Halloween. And as always, pray for wisdom and discernment as you grow each day in the knowledge and saving grace of Jesus Christ Yeshua. If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior, and you haven't accepted His holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it is absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of His Word. It's also impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it is impossible for you to have peace with Yahweh, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins and you can have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. The Bible actually declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds. So we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step, regardless of what you may have heard. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Understand that repentance is a process and it is absolutely attainable because of the grace and mercy and power of God. Because of Jesus Christ and His once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of all of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but He is also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, He is willing to meet you right where you are, and He will show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death, but tonight we can receive the gift of God which is eternal life, but only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I am so thankful that God sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, a living sacrifice, who shed His sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins, which offers us the ability to be seen as blameless before God on that day of judgment. And make no mistake, there will come a day of judgment, ladies and gentlemen. Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you are filled with the Holy Spirit 
and you can begin putting on the armor of God and growing in an intimate relationship with Him. It is the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles and learn firsthand what God expects from you. If you don't have a Bible, we highly recommend that you pick up a King James Bible, which is easy for anyone to find. Jesus Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on Him tonight. That's the most important part of the show, and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I sure hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived on our website, fourthwatchradio.com, all spelled out, F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find links to multiple streaming options, and every broadcast is dated and summarized for your convenience. Everything we offer is completely free, including our mobile apps for Apple and Android devices. You can easily click the link on the website to be taken to whichever app store applies to your device. Be sure to stay tuned in every Thursday for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook, and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the Fourth Watch is ministered to you, and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the donate link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network.